Welcome to episode three of the On The Way podcast, a podcast based on an inclusive, non-dualistic, compassionate perspective of faith. Uh, I'm joined, uh, as I have been always so far, by the very Reverend Dr. Peter Catt. Hello, Peter. Thank you for joining me again. Thanks, Dom. Great to be with you. And uh, it's great this week to be joined by Reverend Sue Wilton, uh, I would say the driving force behind this podcast, uh, who's been able to join us today. Welcome, Sue. Oh, it's wonderful to be here on the podcast (laughs) this time. Absolutely. Um, And look, today we are going to be discussing gender and God, which uh, I know is a a uh, very passionate topic for both of you. Um, uh, I know throughout the, the course of the podcast so far and onwards, we're speaking a lot about deeply embedded and ingrained, I guess, elements of our mindset when it comes to faith and society. And there's probably none more so than gender. Um, I, I thought it might be helpful, Sue, to begin with, just as an introduction to you to the podcast mm-hmm. and also to this topic, to hear a little bit about your background and, and how you came to become, a, I guess, a, a reverend at St. John's Cathedral. Okay, flying short version. Um, I was actually brought up in the Methodist Church, um, but I did what many decent teenagers do and got to the point of going, I think this all looks like rot. I think it's actually all about respectability and keeping up appearances and it's not where the life is. So I decided I was an atheist for quite a number of years and then had, um, can I, do, I had a spiritual experience where God was not this distant other, but God was very close and intimate. So how old were you in that spiritual oh, about experience? 21. Okay. Uh, and from that point, I went on a bit of an odyssey. I went on an odyssey through different expressions of faith and church. And until I, I guess that was the, the sense of call within the Christian faith was growing. I was at the time studying a bit of history. Part of that was also to trace for me, tracing connections was very powerful. It was tracing connections to the past. And and from that point, I, I just continued on and started into, I was a teacher and then sort of stepped into chaplaincy in schools mm. from that point. Um, after that, continuing through a variety of denominations, I, I was, you know, there was always that sense. It's like, you know, for me, it was, the ripples were always going out. God's grace was always getting bigger. And whatever box I tried to fit in, I, I, I tried to fit God in. I found it didn't work for very long, that, that God was always bigger than any box I could find or that anyone else would try to impose. Mm. And so as as God's grace got bigger, so I guess I felt a sense of expansion as well and the need to follow that call. And that took me out of denominations or out of spaces where women's ministry um, wasn't validated and certainly women couldn't be ordained. And so I found my way into the Anglican Church. And uh, women's ordination, I guess, will be a topic we'll discuss as we go on. Um, I think the tradition you used to be a part of is one that I have also spent many years in as well. Um, Peter, I'm interested, to, I guess, to hear about your first uh, interactions with Sue, how Sue came on uh, your radar, I guess, how you met Sue. Do you have memories of, of that? Um, well, we had a number of interactions over a number of years as I was working with the college students and when Sue was a student. Um, our first serious interaction was at the clergy conference a couple of years ago when the archbishop said to me, uh, I think I've found you an excellent curate. Just uh, have a have a quiet conversation and see if it's got any legs. Um, the idea of Sue coming to the cathedral and um, as soon as we started conversing, I realized that there was a a real depth and openness and 
one of the things we value in the cathedral is is the idea of exploration and openness and Sue um, was a real natural fit from the get-go. I guess Sue this is a it's a good place to start because you know as you've mentioned already there are some faith uh, denominations which would not allow you to to hold the position you currently hold um in general if religion and christianity has been very devoid of women in leadership roles have you found have you been met at any stage with any resistance in your role or in your roles so far oh look i, I think there's always people who have different interpretations and who take um, some things in scripture to mean that, that women should not speak out in church, should not have leadership positions. So yes, I have encountered um, that kind of point of view. I think it's a bit of a myth though to think of women not being in, in leadership, uh, certainly in, in the last few hundred years, that's true. But if you actually go back to the early church, mm. there's a lot of, lot of um, scriptural evidence for women as apostles and teachers and leaders in the church. Some of that you know, has got squashed over the years. Uh, you know, I think St. Paul has been given a bit of a bad rap for being kind of anti-women in leadership when his words are often some of the most empowering and he refers to his fellow apostles as, as women. The, the classic one, I think, is, is in Romans is, is um, Junia, who somehow in history, in the scribing, whether it was an error, whether it was intentional, uh, a little S got added to Junia's name, which made it her name male. There's, there's little evidences like that along the way, but there are, is also just so much of a sense in the early church of being a, a new community, a new community where both men and women are equal around the table. Yeah, And I think, um, you know, we, we've already chatted on the podcast before about how at the core of it, Christianity it was founded in being countercultural. And the culture for, I mean, Peter, you'd probably know uh, better than me, but I imagine as long as, as history has been told, has been that the, the masculine has been the dominant in society. Um, but you did speak uh, recently at, at St. John's at the Cathedral at Easter about how the, the story of the crucifixion and resurrection actually flips that on its head by giving two women the ability to, I guess, uh, making them the witness to Jesus' resurrection. Yeah, well, in our tradition, we certainly have come to love the idea of Mary Magdalene being the apostle to the apostles, that she, mm. she was the get-go person who had to take the news to the apostles. And I think it's very significant that the biblical writers place women in that role when the culture was that women were not to be trusted. Um, Josephus says that women uh, were by nature full of levity and um, and prone to uh, lie for hope of gain and so that they weren't to be admitted as witnesses. And the fact that the early church, when it's telling its story, its foundational story, places women at the tomb is a signal that the new creation that is coming to birth on Easter Day and that the community of faith is living uh, has done away with that whole way of looking at humanity, that there is a new humanity in which there is neither male nor female. And there's increasing amount of evidence to suggest that the early church lived with that and eventually the empire conquered the church. We like to think that the, the church over, took over the empire, but there are plenty, there's plenty of evidence that the empire recolonize the church mm. um, and part of part of the call that is placed upon us these days is to recapture that vision that happened outside the tomb on the first day of the new creation 
It's interesting that that if we even look at a, I guess, an interfaith perspective, um, the diminished role of women is consistent throughout almost all religions. Um, do you mostly put that down to being a reflection of culture and of society? I oh, sure do, and I just I think that's a symbol of uh, the of the need for transformation. The fact that the fact that the early church had this other vision but culture was so strong mm. is just a reminder that we don't play in the same pond that we actually have to create we have to live as if we are part of the new creation and stand in our own narrative universe which says that life is completely different and for me that's what the eucharist is about the eucharist gathers at its best gathers the most eclectic collection of human beings around the altar. People you would never spend time with otherwise are suddenly there as equals, eating the bread, breaking the bread, break open, breaking open the word and sharing part of this new creation. So the Eucharist is the weekly embodiment of this completely different way of being human. I think uh, largely the external perspective or the secular perspective, if, if you want to use that term, of the Christian faith is one that is oppressive, one that is uh, probably reinforcing these uh, these oppressive gender roles rather than trying to subvert them. Um, but Sue, I, I guess the, the, the clarity that comes from this is that the, the true essence of the Christian faith, of the Christ-led faith, is one that is, you know, more of a radical movement than, than anything on this front. Yeah, I, th- I think w- what's incredibly powerful in that witness, I think the forces are very strong to contain hierarchical roles, to contain gendered roles that are in a, a kind of vertical hierarchy, you know, and yet I think it's evidence of the work of the spirit being so powerful and so strong that that can be subverted mm. and that we get, you know, <laughs> sometimes it only feels like glimpses of the new creation, that space where we are all equal you know, uh, but but it's still there and it keeps popping up. And despite the pressure, despite the enormous pressure that there is in, in patriarchal systems and in empire systems and in sexist systems, you know, that there's still um, that this spirit of life and love that would say we are one community, regardless of gender, is, is still there and, and, and it's happening. It's breaking out all over the place. Uh, I know that growing up as a uh, pastor's kid in the Baptist church, uh, it was quite clear to me that my mum's role was the pastor's wife, not the pastor. And and I think there'd be many people throughout the you know the the church system who would relate to this experience, even though mum probably uh, I think even dad would agree often did more work for the church than than he did. She was the pastor's wife, and that was was the role. Um, I guess the question is, how do we, in your words, Peter, stand in a different pond? How do we stand outside of this system? You know, this assumption of gender roles is so deeply ingrained that that most people don't even realise it's happening. So how do you stand outside of that? Um, two, Two things. I think one is you have to understand that you are actually standing in a different pond and you have to claim your narrative mm. and understand what your narrative is. And secondly, I think for the church, it's a matter of uh, really dealing with the subliminal sexism. And that subliminal sexism starts with uh, our God imagery. Mm. One of my habits is at Evensong um, to finish with the ironic blessing and to say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up her countenance upon you and grant you her peace. 
just changing two pronouns from him to her, that action gets me more attacks or quizzical questioning mm. than anything else I do. Isn't that fascinating? It is fascinating, and that's why I keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> but people people have real trouble coming at the idea that the Lord, as in God, mm. I think part of it is that they think the Lord references to Jesus, and that's just because they don't understand what the ironic blessing, who the Lord is. But the idea that God could be female. Now, I could stand there and I could say that you know God was an eagle. God the eagle lift you up under the feathers of God's wings. I could say God the rock keep you strong. I could say that God the ever-flowing flavor flowing stream refresh <laughs> you. But use feminine language and suddenly people are going, boom. <laughs> God can be water, but he can't be a woman. That's right. Yes. Yeah, God can be water, rock. <laughs> Shield, you know, quiver, you know, all of that sort of stuff. Mm. But the idea that the feminine imagery, which is part of the tradition, but often people don't see, that that, that that would even be given a slight nod to, shows that we have a fundamental problem. That our language, our God language is so masculinized that we have concretized a metaphor. All of those other things, we, we accept that calling God a rock and God a shepherd are metaphors, but we're so married to the he bit of God that we've actually taken that, which is another metaphor, that God is like a male, and we've concretized it. So that when you say God has feminine characteristics, people say, oh, you can't do that because this concretized metaphor is being traversed. And so part of... The challenge before the church, I think it's probably one of the, the key challenges. If we're going to live this, we're going to live this new narrative in which we believe there is neither male nor female, we have to reclaim the feminine aspect of God in order to remind ourselves that God is in fact beyond gender. Mm. So a lot of people, a lot of people will say to me when I say, you know, God use feminine imagery about God giving us birth or God being like the woman searching for the lost coin. Um, they say, oh, but God is beyond gender. <laughs> and I say, well, yes, that's, I actually believe that, but that's not what the God language says. And it's not what prompted you to have this conversation with me yes. is because I've actually just realigned the gender talk so that we use male and female language so that we actually restore the fact that the masculine imagery is metaphorical because they won't come out and saying god's beyond gender and you were using he that's right him. no no one comes up and says oh you had a lot of he language in there <laughs> yes. today i mean in our sermons we intentionally neuter god mm. so i can't remember the last time i heard a member of the cathedral staff use a gendered pronoun about God mm. and some people recognize that over time that and appreciate it um, it's it's our guest preachers who tend to say he all the time and every time it happens I feel like I'm being bludgeoned because I'm so used to not hearing it so yeah. for me it's a, it's a constant well because instantly I guess when you say he or him it's exclusive language um, yep. and uh, I imagine so as growing up as a woman in you know a church and and as you've continued to journey through numerous mm. denominations it must have felt in a way that that peter and i could never really understand quite isolating quite removing god from being a i guess a, a relatable 
um, God to you. Yeah, look, I think what what is not understood, I think, sometimes is that this is about being made in the image of God. And as when you grow up as a little girl to a woman, all you hear is that God is male. Mm. And while you hear that, it is very hard to accept that you are made in the image of God. And at the heart of so many women's lack of self-esteem, lack of ability to step into their truer selves, is this inability to accept that they are made in the image of God. And, and that's the number one tragedy for me. And that is what we're doing when we're being careful with our language. It's that important. That's, that's what it means. It's, a, it's a, at its deepest level who you are as a human being made in the image of God. You know, my, my own daughter said to me recently, you know, it's too late, mum. God's an old man in the sky. Mm. You know, it's what I've grown up knowing. You can't change it now. And, and it just shows how pervasive that language is. Um, and, and while we, we have that image, you know, it's so cemented, you know, it, it makes it doubly important that we try to find ways that we can interrogate that, that we can subvert it. Because the thing is that, that you know, even the word Father, when we just say Father, Son and Holy Spirit, Father is not God's name. It's not a name. And I think when we people are so uptight about us altering that and being unsure of it about the, the change because they think it's God's name and it is just, as Peter was saying, it's another another metaphor. Um, it's a way, you know, we have to approach names of God with fear and trembling, really. We have to do this carefully on our knees and humbly, recognising mm. that we don't have the ultimate name for what is most precious, most, um, most glorious. You know, we don't have, have that name. But what we can do is fumble around with metaphors. And I love the image of father for God. I also love the image of mother for God. Because they tell us something of the nature of God's relationship to us. And, but we, are, we have to recognize that we're bumbling around a little bit. We don't have, we don't have the ultimate name. And to be, be humble about it. And I guess the, the risk is that a lot of people who use this language don't understand that they're speaking metaphorically. They, it, it becomes a literal thing. It becomes an object. And... Uh, I guess that does tie back into the, you know, what are we talking about when we use the term God? Um, I know Richard Raw often says most people's perception of God is still Zeus, is the old man in the sky. <laughs> we we actually haven't moved past that. Um, so, so that's probably the core level of coming back to understanding that God is not, I think as Peter Owens calls it, just another object in a world of objects, mm -hmm. but something beyond that. Um, Peter, I'm interested to know, what, what do you think... What do you think we're missing in our relationship with God by removing the feminine? Because making God purely masculine, you know, you can certainly you can certainly see what that does for your image of God. What are we removing? What are we missing when we remove the feminine, in your opinion? Well, we're 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 removing half our understanding of what humanity is like, and concentrating on a particular set of gender roles. And then, and then implying that God, that you know, that man, the God, that man is God, and um, that God is like a man, and um, and, and that's just um, crazy as far as I'm concerned. And also, what we're doing is we are objectifying God. Mm. One of the great strengths of having multiple metaphors is that it makes God ungraspable. Uh, a few years ago, I preached. Uh, sermon called if you meet the buddha on the road kill him and it was it was really looking at gender and god but at its heart it was also this idea about keeping god beyond us as something that draws us and something something that can't be controlled by us 
So when we limit God to a particular metaphor, or, li- or, or turn, or worse, as we have done, turn that metaphor into concrete, then we actually start to harden God into a particular thing. And so that Buddhist tradition is that if you think you've got a handle on it, uh, take, take a hammer to your image, because it's an idol, um, and destroy it and move on. And so at its heart, by not having that wonderful complexity of the, meta- the feminine metaphor as part of our, our kit, we're actually committing that first sin of idolatry. That that's incredible. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just soaking that in at the moment because I think I think that is something that, again, as as I said at the start, it's so deeply ingrained and embedded that you don't even realise really that you've been doing it probably your whole life. Um, so I'm just uh, doing a, my own mental check on that one. Um, but but Sue, so, speaking of, I guess growing up in a he him faith system. Um, and speaking about how that does remove the ability to be to know that you were made in the image of God, what was the connection that you then found with the divine? Because it had to go beyond that. It had to be. It, it's almost like you know, for a young man to 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 form some sort of relationship with a masculine God seems somewhat achievable because they can just imagine a greater version of themselves. Maybe they can hear their their gender reflected in the language. Um, but for a young woman, it's, it, it, I imagine it's much harder. So what was that, I guess, that journey towards forging your own relationship with a, a God you had been told was masculine? What was that like? Yeah, I think it's interesting. There's a lot of internal tapes you have to overcome, a lot of, a lot of narratives running in your head that you have to interrogate. And I, I think when we're talking about how pervasive things are mm. um, and how pervasive, even, you know, it's not just ideas about God, but how pervasive ideas about gender are, you know, it gets, gets into your system just the same way that racism does. I, I love a story that Archbishop Desmond Tutu tells of when he was going on a flight and, and his first response when he saw two black pilots getting into the cockpit, his first thought was, yay, isn't that fantastic? And then they hit some turbulence in the plane on the way and his first thought was, oh, no, I don't know if they can handle it. You know, mm. <laughs> like I want to get off. So, you know, and it just, you know, and he tells that story as an illustration. You know, I mean, he, that thought horrified him. But mm. it's an illustration of how it gets into your psyche, of how pervasive things like racism and sexism are. And so for me, I had, you know, a lot of those kind of tapes running. I had... Um, it was always, for me, I guess, a sense of God stretching me, expanding me, and, and, and yet it was in spite of what I thought I knew. Mm. And it came to the point of having to challenge, and sometimes it was a direct, okay, who do I listen to here? The church is telling me one thing, but this sense of life that is in me that I don't seem to be able to suppress or want to is telling me something different. And it came down to that point of having, having to follow where the life was and, and dig deeper then. And I got a lot of help from, you know, some great feminist theologians to help me on that pathway. But it, it was a bit of a, a battle against the tapes running in my own head. Could I just say, Dom, that, that you know, your description of it's easy for a male to have that relationship with a male god... Uh, Whilst that might seem like it's, a, it's an easy walk, it's also a description of something that's absolutely terrifying mm. in that it actually means that there, there is nothing in that imagery 
to challenge the male. Mm. It's a bit like our culture is so extroverted that extroverts don't know what it is to be quiet, whereas introverts are always battling. You know, I think the introverts are better off in an extroverted culture because they actually have to find a way to negotiate their way into extroversion Mm. to survive, but at least they have the central call to inner reflection that's there all the time, whereas the extroverts who are out there in an extroverted culture never get the invitation to come back. Um, that same danger exists if you masculinize God, then it means that for the male who finds that an easy journey, that there is no, nothing inviting him to broaden his own sense of humanity. And I think that's that is a minefield because mm. it it reinforces the idea that um, he is godlike. It sets him up to uh, have uh, hierarchical, abusive relationships because he hasn't been challenged in terms of who he is as a human. And so whilst it might seem like it's an easy ride and it's easy because there are no challenges, it's, it is a path that is full of destruction and terror. So equally that it's important to emphasize the feminine God for, I guess, uh, young women to, to have a, an ability to have relationship with that God. It's equally important to fe- uh, emphasize the feminine God for young men to be challenged by an alternative view. Absolutely. To, because if the idea is, if, is you know, to pick up on that image that Sue used before, if we're made in the image of God, and we are, and it's our humanness, it's humanity that is in the image of God, and we just, we just happen to have gender because of our biology, we have to discover beyond our gender what it is to be a human being. And a God that is described using the feminine and the masculine metaphor invites us to go beyond that so that we understand that we are first and foremost, first and foremost a human being mm. and then a man or a woman second. Mm. And, and I think that once one captures that, one starts to break down the idea of what gender roles look like you know, gender roles in the end become minuscule. You know, it becomes basically down to reproductive capacity. And then after that, everything's up for grabs. So, you know, in, in, the, in the new and new and wonderful humanity that starts on Easter, it means that everyone can discover what their vocation is. And so one, you know, one of the great delights of my life was to be a parent, not so much a father, but a parent, because, mm. you know, and you know, one of my daughters, it was one of those classic things, she was one day asking for something and she, she and, and often would stumble over herself because she'd say, mum, dad, oh, and after a while she just said, parent, <laughs> because the, for her, the gendered roles were not being modelled in the household. So she was looking for parenting. And so there's a sense in which I mothered my children and my wife fathered our children based on what the role of the parenting that was required at the time. So, you know, we were both 
feisty defenders of our children. It wasn't, and there was no, you know, wait till your father gets home stuff. It was, you know, discipline was something that was done by parents. Defending of children was something that was done by parents. Nurture was something that was done by parents. And I had the liberated experience of being allowed to be seen as a gentle nurturing presence in my kid's life rather than the terrifying father role that, say, when I was growing up was was what where men fitted, you know. You know a lot of my peers, I mean, I didn't have this experience as much, but a lot of my peers had the experience of dad was the disciplinarian and mother was the nurturer and, and there was that, all that gendered sort of stuff which must have been absolute hell because people were not allowed to be gentle fathers, you know, which is, you know, Brian Wren's got this wonderful hymn that talks about the names of God, and he talks about a strong mother God and a gentle father God. He actually takes, the, takes all the language and mixes it up, so you've got this completely different understanding of what it is for, in terms of what God looks like, but also what a human being is, what it is to be a parent, what it is to play your role in life, which means that uh, you know the people who are meant to be leaders are people who are meant to be leaders, not men or women. Or it's it's based on who they are and their personal charisms, which are you know beyond their gender. And I think that's actually a, an interesting point because if you approach, uh, I guess, how traditionally people have had a relationship with their father, especially men, often it's an aspirational one. It's I have to achieve to impress. I have to. You know, I really have to earn the love of my father, whereas there has been more of a sense, I think, that the, the a mother's love is unconditional. And when you remove that element from God as well, then you you also make God an aspirational uh, God who you have to impress, not an unconditionally loving God. So it is very interesting that, that I think um, all the language of Jesus referring to God as father is such tender language, such gentle, compassionate language Yet that is not the relationship many people have with their fathers, which almost makes the metaphor uh, not quite obsolete, but certainly flawed in a, a modern context. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think there's also people have, um, for many people, their first uh, experience of life on earth has been the nurturing of a mother. That's mm. just true for so many. And um, you know, I think there's a reason why um, the Virgin Mary in Roman Catholicism has been so central is for some people down, down the hundreds of years of history, uh, she was much more accessible as a God figure than God the Father. And it provided a, a way in that people could seek a feminine aspect of God. And I think we, we've sometimes lacked that and, and we've lost a lot of that imagery uh, of the feminine in, in God. But that, that takes more than just uh, God being female. It's, more, it's bigger than that. There's all the images of birthing, of creation, of all of that aspect of the nature of God kind of gets sidelined. And one thing that being able to be open to the full expression of all the metaphors of God, everything that we find in Scripture, we start to reveal God who's so present in creation, so present in the earth. And that material world that, that honours the bodies of men and women, it honours God in this creative mothering process. And so, so many people, I think, who've, who've uh, actually found paganism uh, so attractive, the goddess image so attractive, uh, that's part of what they are searching for too. They're, they're seeking that honouring of the earth. 
You know, the earth is God's body is another metaphor that you can use that we've lost. Uh, that honouring of the earth, because God said it was good, all of it, you know, and, and I think that's that's part of what we need to reclaim. So uh, um, I guess I'm interested in terms of the arguments people often will come up with against uh, women in church, women speaking in church. Um, I know these well because the church that I have been a part of for some years, a Lutheran church, hosted the Lutheran Synod quite recently, actually, where the vote on women's ordination was held and uh, defeated. Um, uh, that must be endlessly frustrating, um, endlessly deflating to feel like you're, I guess, the, the battle of any, uh, person who, who is in a, I guess, an oppressed minority of some element to feel like a total misunderstanding or misrepresentation is consistently defeating women in faith. Oh, look, it's frustrating seeing the, the many women with fabulous gifts that are being lost to the church, you know, or at least having to not being able to live into their full expression of, of the person God called them to be. That's incredibly frustrating. Um, I think it does, this is probably the subject of another podcast, but I think a lot of it comes down to what you understand by scripture and how you interpret scripture. Um, so we won't go into, into depth here, but, uh, but certainly people pull individual lines out. And I think I've already touched on how there are also alternate scriptures that say something different, mm. but they will pull individual lines out that say that women cannot um, speak in church or cannot occupy those positions. And that's seen as the final authority for some. I, I think that's a bit tokenistic, though. I, I don't think it's really the real reason. <laughs> I think in many cases, there's a lot of other stuff going on. A lot of other stuff that's to do with culture, that's to do with um, sexist systems. You know, uh, there, there, there is one. Um, uh, I was actually, I was actually one key argument that was put forward once was, um, <laughs> what, if, what if a woman gets her period when she's presiding? And <laughs> and my first thought was, oh, well, do they mean that's unfortunate? What are they, what are they talking about here? Do, you know, do brain surgeons have the same problem? But uh, I actually realised as I reflected for a little bit longer that it wasn't a about that it was about it was about the blood it was about rights of impurity it's about some some old testament stuff there um you know it's, it's, we're going back to leviticus things you know and and i to me i trace that back to fear of women's bodies of of discomfort with with women's bodies and so i think there's more going on than just pulling a line out of scripture it is interesting that a faith that was so clearly grounded in in christ's life with the celebration and the importance of women some 2,000 years later, still won't fully celebrate it. Does, it. does it mystify you, Peter, or can you quite understand why that's happened? I can see why it happened. Um, I, it does mystify me as to why it was allowed to happen. Um, but empire is strong, and those who seek after power will always seek ways to do it. And you know, the, the, church, the church got colonised by the empire, um, there are very strong movements in the church to exclude people who are not conservative. Um, uh, and conservative, you know, my experience, people, there's sort of a, there's an anger that goes with a lot of um, what you'd call fundamentalist thinking, uh, anger and fear, and those are very powerful drivers. And um, it's easy for other people to lose heart. Um, but, and that's why I'm a great believer in this, you know, living, living the alternate reality and the alternate narrative. I mean, the, the ordination of women debate was not won over, over the 
the trench warfare of lobbing scriptures across the divide. It was actually as people came to see the potential of the of what the church could look like, and and people uh, seeing the potential of what the church could be like with uh, ordained women, and then. Once we got to a critical point where women were in ministry, there were a whole bunch of people who got converted by experience, mm. and that's why we and that's why we have to live the alternate life. You just you live it so that people see it and then they fall in love with it, because you'll never you'll never win the conversation. It's like the creation debate, creation evolution debate. There's there, there's there, you can't win that by entering into that paradigm of my scripture is better than your scripture. Um, in the new humanity, we do use the scriptures, um, but look for the ways in which the new humanity is captured and described in them. You know, there are plenty of feminine imagery in the scriptures to celebrate, and so one simply starts celebrating those. And my hope is that 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 movement will begin to affect the liturgy of the church. Our liturgical language is still highly masculinized, exclusively masculinized. Um, very few of the feminine images about giving birth, which is, you know, even Exodus has ideas of God saying, I gave birth to you. And we just sort of ride roughshod over that as if it's, well, we don't hear it as feminine because we don't think we can hear it. We can't. He- we can't hear it. It's that we can't hear the feminine language. It's that deeply embedded in yeah. our minds that yeah. we just skip over it. Well, and the stark. I mean, the starkest example for me is Luke 15. In Luke 15, there are three identical parables about the seeking after lost things. The first one is the parable of the shepherd looking for the lost sheep. The third one is the parable of the father seeking for the lost son. People have no problem recognizing that in the first, the shepherd is the God figure seeking after the lost. People have no problem of the third, seeing that the father seeks after the lost son. In between is a very small little vignette but it's right in the middle of the other two, is the woman seeking for the lost coin. Mm. And you you say to people, can you see a feminine image of God in the Gospel of Luke? And they go, no. (laughs) And yet we've got these three, you know, these three stories put there to emphasize the idea that God is one who seeks after lost things. The early church places a story in there of a woman seeking after lost things. All of them rejoice. You know, the, the parable, they're all the same structure. The thing gets lost, find, the, the person goes looking, finds it and says, rejoice with me, I have found. Right? It's the same, same script. But we can only see God in two of them. We can only see God in two of them. And there it is, as stark as anything. When you, and when you point it out to people, they go, oh. <laughs> but there it is, the early church. The early church says God is like this. God is like a woman seeking after a lost coin. Mm. And when she finds that which she has lost, she says, Rejoice with me, for I have found that which is lost. 
Yeah, wow. <laughs> there it is, right? It's like, it's like, you know, it's not even you have to look for the subtle image of, you know, God saying, I gave birth to you, which, you know, and, I'm, and I keep tripping across it. It's like this year, uh, a little while ago, we had um, Nicodemus uh, coming to Jesus, and Jesus says, you have to be born from above. And for the first time, first time it twigged to me that there is an image of god as feminine you, know? you have to be born mm. by water and the spirit i hadn't seen that that particular feminine image in the scriptures this stuff is hidden in plain sight yes uh, so i had neutered that where in fact it is a very rich feminine image and in such a mass uh, as I've said such a deeply embedded masculine uh, culture and framework. You yeah. can just miss these things. Well, and in John's gospel where Jesus says, Father to this, Father that, you know, you know the, the farewell discourse is very father saturated. But here we are at the very beginning of that gospel. Yeah. Is Jesus, the same Jesus, saying you have to be born of water and the spirit. I mean, how can that not be a feminine image? I guess the, the then the, the first um, step on moving towards this view of God is, as we discussed last time in the non-dualism podcast, is not saying, you know, I am not sexist, but instead acknowledging the ways in which so deeply ingrained you already are, and that that's the first step, as you mentioned, the Desmond Tutu story. So, so it's almost, it's less about learning and more about unlearning, um, in a sense. How do you think you, you do that? Yeah, I think it is about unlearning, and, uh, and I think there's also um, the part of being on the way is about openness too, and allowing yourself to be converted again and again and again. And you know, I think our God is a God of surprises, and thankfully, you know, things can hit us in Scripture suddenly that that renew our understanding and open our eyes. We come with each other. We, you know, people can come with this amazing insight um, that can just turn us around. It's a reconversion all the time that turn us to where that life is, to to turn us to what the new kingdom actually looks like. Uh, so I think it, it's it's being able to be open. I think also, I guess, being yourself. Well, as much as there is so much that men and women have in common, I think we also come to faith in our gender. We come as who we are. You come um, with your own, like I will come with my feminine perspectives to things, uh, and, and that can our our, our understanding is coloured coloured by that. But that's not a negative. That's actually can be a gift. And I think being able to be yourself is part of what incarnational faith is all about. That God comes to us. You know that God is present, embodied in the world, and we live as embodied. Um, you know, our our faith is carried in ourselves and our life experience. So, allowing your experience to teach you, and allowing yourself just that honouring of who you are, is is part of what incarnational faith, um, the gift of it. I think, and uh, I think so core to the, the the call of the faith is humility, is humbling yourself, and. And I think often, uh, I know as a as young man growing up, you can quite easily use the masculine God to empower yourself rather than humble yourself. Um, whereas I guess uh, adding to the mystery and, and removing gender does make it easier to humble yourself. Um, I kind of think I need to go away and rethink my entire ideologies about the world and <laughs> about life uh, because you, you just don't know how deeply ingrained this stuff is until you start to scratch at the surface. And uncover it. Um, 
Peter, we, we call this the On The Way podcast. Do you still feel on the way with uncovering that? I mean, you mentioned the, the Nicodemus story and still uncovering it more and more. Um, absolutely. And, and that's where your call to humility is spot on. Um, I love the word humility and I love, I love its, its deepest meaning in that humility has the same root word as humus and it literally means to have your feet on the ground. So someone who's truly humble knows who they are. And so the journey of self-discovery is tied with the journey of understanding who God is. And humility is coming to understand exactly who you are as made in the image of God and as in relationship to others and developing that um, capacity to see clearly who you are and who you aren't. Mm. And that for me is, you know, it's a journey that's only been going on for 56 years so far, <laughs> so I'm only just into the beginning of it. But that sense of coming to understand what one's gifts are and then using them, and also understanding what one's gifts aren't, and so not pretending to have them. And just that idea of stripping away so one sees clearly, and that's, for me, that's the constant work. So it's not the, not the under, and I think we've got to reclaim the word humility because, you know, there's the Uriah Heap form of you of humility that we see in David Copperfield, you know, ah, oh, Mr. Copperfield, I'm a humble man, you know, <laughs> I'm nothing, where in fact he was a very prideful man, um, and humility can be the great mask of pride which is the second great sin. Idolatry is number one and pride is number two, I think. I think a, a direct quote that I found recently was Donald Trump saying, I think I'm more humble than you could imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> it. That's, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, he, if, if, if there was, uh, yes, he, he is Uriah Heap out of David Copperfield. There's no risk about that, as well as few of Shakespearean roles. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, it's, it's that, that, and that is the call. And again, it's like the idea of if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. If you if you get to the point where you think you understand yourself, then take that image, crush it, and move through it and beyond it. Because there's so much to discover about oneself, and the you know the the tendency to be sexist, the tendency to be racist, the you know the tendency to be arrogant. We all have it, um, and coming to face it is what conversion is about and the road to conversion is lifelong and it's fantastic and uh i guess on a closing note um uh, sue i think it's so important for uh women probably of all ages to be able to see women like you in church roles and and then also to move to see the feminine god as well and, and i guess restore that sense of inequality in faith um and if there are, you know, women listening to this uh, who have struggled to do that, who have struggled to feel this sense of them being made in the image of God, uh, maybe they've, they've really struggled to see God as anything but he, anything but Zeus. Um, 
Where where could you get started? Where are some good places that you got started? I, I think number one most important place to get started is in the Gospels. You, know, you read the Gospels. Read the way Jesus relates to the women in his life. Read the way the women responded and acted in those ministries. You know, you go there and you realise how subversive, when you look closely, how subversive Jesus really was, you know. There's that story, Mark Driscoll once said something like, um, he wouldn't trust a God he could beat in a wrestling match. You know, and I, you know, I, I, I always hang on to that quote because I think nothing says so completely how wrong you can get it. You know, when yeah, actually Jesus ended up on a cross. You know, uh, did you miss what happened on Good Friday? You know, uh, and that that whole sense that that Jesus is on the side always of the weak, the downtrodden, that Jesus is always doing the justice thing, the leveling, equating, mm. setting the lines so that those who have been disempowered have a chance to live and be themselves and and to thrive. And so when you start with the Gospels, you're starting with, with Jesus, whose whole message is oriented towards that new kingdom. And I guess we shouldn't be surprised, given that he had a mother who sang him all those subversive nursery songs. So you know, I think, yeah, you can't go, go much better than that for a starting point. Well, this has been a fascinating chat. Thank you so much, both of you. Uh, I believe, Peter, you're about to go away for some time, so you may not be with us on the next podcast. Enjoy your travels. Thank you very much. Um, And uh, Sue, you and I uh, will be back shortly with another episode of the On The Way podcast. We will indeed. And we'll see you next time.